everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88 right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio. In the morning, you are with Lyle and Lawson. Janae. Janae is still here. We are. This is your last day, Janae. Yes. We're super sad. Me too. It's so good. But you did record an interview for us, so that will be coming up yep. at some stage in the future. This is not the last time you will be hearing Janae's voice. <laughs> uh, she did a great interview the other day, with which we recorded with uh, Dr. Don Batten from uh, Creation Ministries International. So that's something to look forward to. Uh, what do you think? What are you, what are you guys thankful for this morning? Who wants to go first? Lawson. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, look, okay. What am I thankful for this morning? Okay, I have a big announcement, Lyle. Okay. That um, I mm-hmm. am yes. expecting a child. Okay. <laughs> nah, just kidding. April, <laughs> April Fool's, it's April 1st this morning. So. <laughs> I love how you, do, you just, like, you just, you knew that I was going to say something dumb. Like, you didn't even react. But yeah, April Fool's, it's, it's April 1st this morning. That's what I'm grateful for. So I'm just going uh, to be people. thankful for April Fool's. That was going to be my thankful for. And ah, thankfulness. Come on. We get to prank each other today. <laughs> right. Janae, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful for... Just technology in general. We had a few issues this morning. It was a bit dodge, but we're, yeah. we're on air this morning. So very happy about that, Good that stuff. we can be here with you guys. Mm. So we're able to uh, bring you Bible study, bring you all kinds of news, talk about Jesus above everything else. That's the best thing about being able to be on the breakfast show is that we get to talk about Jesus and to share him with you. Uh, so we are thankful for that this morning. Let me think of something else. I was going to be thankful for April Fool's Day. <laughs> it's kind of cool to, It's kind of cool that we have these special, well, kind of special days that we just randomly and arbitrarily set aside for doing silly things. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Uh, let's have a look at some positively different news uh, right across the world. So I've come across uh, a story this morning that comes from the the windswept island of Stockholm, not Stockholm, uh, the capital city of uh, Sweden, but Stockholm, uh, which is a small island in Wales uh, that essentially uh, some people have gone there for the first time. Uh, they've gone to this, it's this tiny little island that's only inhabited by animals and they've gone there for the first time since COVID-19, you know, since the pandemic, and uh, they have made some, you know, uh, archaeological discoveries. Uh, We recently had the kind of, you know, people were calling it like the Dead Sea Scrolls Part 2, even though they were nowhere near as significant. Uh, It's going to be hard to top that one. Yeah, but these these also weren't very significant. Um, But the interesting thing about these, you know, uh, different artifacts that they find, which included, you know, uh, tools and... uh, you know, some parts from boats and some uh, shards from, you know, some pottery and some urns and whatnot, uh, was that they found it in a rabbit hole. Oh, really? That's pretty cool. Yeah, so basically <laughs> this island is a real kind of ecosystem. It's it's this island that all these different species of bird and, and you know, little critters and whatnot, they all migrate to during some parts of the year to just live out and they just chill there because there's no human activity. Okay, so, so it's, not, it's an uninhabited island. Uninhabited island. Yep. Um, and yeah, these guys have just gone there for the first time since COVID just having a look around and they literally just look down a rabbit hole and find like tools and all these different things that wow. they're, they're aging in around, you know, the stone age period. They're like at the latest, you know, uh, 
because this is a part of Europe as well, which, you know, kind of places Stone Age tools a little bit later back in the period of, uh, in the periods of time. But yeah, so around, around 4,000 years ago is what they're saying. That I, I heard a rumour that they were estimating between 3,550 or something or other, some very <laughs> specific date. Yeah. And then, oh, about 10,000. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I was, <laughs> telling, I was telling Lyle before the show, yeah, 3,750 years ago or just 9,000, which is such a wide <laughs> range, <laughs> particularly when you're looking at human history, like... You, right. you can't make a range like that. It, it needs to be a little bit more specific. The insane thing about how they date this stuff is they mm. say, well, it's stone tools and people stopped using stone tools in such and such era and the Stone Age came to an end by, you know, such and such a date, you know, 3,750 uh-huh. or whatever it might be was the end of the Stone Age era. But the simple reality is that the Stone Age era still exists. Yeah, there are 100%. still people who live in Papua New Guinea who are practicing Stone Age culture yeah. and using stone tools. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so if you were to, you know, flood the world right now, you would date those people to, you know, say 10,000 years ago when actually they're current with what's happening in the world exactly. right now. Right. But, you know, the thing is that they found it in Wales, like which is, you know, part, a part of England. Yeah, so know, that does give them, you know, a little bit stronger some, argument. Some credibility that, like, oh, yeah, this is actually Stone Age material. Yes. Uh, you know, and obviously they can just look at the artifacts themselves and say, oh, degradation, whatnot. Um, you know, these haven't been, like, carbon dated. They, there's what, no need what to. What they but, don't know is how long they had Stone Age people living alongside, you know, say, Bronze Age people or whatever, um, you know, because those cultures have often lived very, very close to each other and side by side for long periods of time before mm. they've actually updated. So I'm throwing lots of skepticism. Oh, dude. <laughs> wow, this is positively different news. <laughs> just, just dumping cold water on it. No, it's, I think it's awesome. I love it when people discover stuff in archaeology is the best thing ever. Oh, I'd isn't love to be cool? an archaeologist. Dude, yeah, let's, dude, Faith of M archaeology trip. Let's, let's go. Let's do it. Let's, let's go, go to, to Wales. Wales. Let's go to Wales. Oh, we could go to the next place that I have uh, here uh, in the Next story, the uh, Fagradalsfjall volcano yes. in Iceland. Uh, Love your which, confidence with that yeah. name. <laughs> Fagradalsfjall. Uh, this uh, volcano found in the Rakinas Peninsula went off a couple weeks ago, made big news, was the first time in 800 years, and now uh, video footage has been released of a dr- drone flying around the, uh, the volcano while it's going off in the middle of the night. Dude, it's pretty hectic like if you have a look at this photo Janae wow. it's like so it's, it's almost apocalyptic it's like <laughs> dead black and then just flames and fire and uh you know of course this is this is the kind of um this is the kind of photography we've never been able to do before because it's not like you can fly a helicopter down there and it's not like mm, a person right. can go down there yeah and so you just make a uh, a reasonably heat proof drone mm-hmm. mm. send it in Amazing stuff. Yes. Oh, it's so, so cool. cool. <laughs> and it, yeah, first time in 800 years. So yeah, jump on the web, uh, jump on YouTube, look it up, uh, the Fagradal volcano, and you'll see some awesome footage there. Also, quick story I wanted to mention for the first time in 12 days, the township of Crescent Head up near Kempsey is accessible, uh, to the rest of the world. Essentially for 12 days, uh, they were completely cut off from land. Yeah, a bit of an island. Yeah, they're b- wow. a complete island. Luckily, uh, Crescent Head, it's a bit of a surfy town. Uh, they have a, they have a, you know, uh, a surf club there. And so basically their only access back to, you know, essentially what have 
become the mainland where they could go and get supplies. They used the, you know, the, um, it's not a tinny, it's the rubber ducky, like oh, yes. the, the little <laughs> blow up boat, uh, to go, uh, you know, they would, uh, jump in, jump in the boat, drive it up the street, <laughs> up to, up to, uh, you know, to then get into Kempsey to buy stuff and come back. So yeah, they're finally, uh, you know, seeing, seeing daylight out of this. The water has, uh, resided. And, uh, yeah, just really awesome stories coming out from there about, you know, the, the school became a real place of refuge. And then, yeah, just driving the tinny down the street, making sure everyone's all good, knocking on doors. So, yeah, good to see that. It's amazing how community comes together in these kinds of crises and how much people actually find Mm. ways of enjoying a crisis, even Mm. though, you know, terrible things are happening. Mm. People band together and find the, uh, the best way, the best way of dealing with it. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Poor old Lawson, his brain is just hurting here. I just feel for you. I just feel for you, Lawson. We should have... Uh... Okay, so do send those those guesses through. We need to be able to eliminate a bunch of things. Process of elimination here will bring us to the answer of this question, but I did promise that I would talk about this morning, uh, for everybody's entertainment, the uh, when the squirrel went berserk in the St. Anne Catholic Church. So some of, you, some of you who have been around for a long time and maybe old country and Western fans may have heard Ray Stevens' song, you know, when the squirrel went berserk in the first self-righteous church. Well, it actually happened this time, but it was the St. Anne Catholic Church um, on Mackinac Island in Michigan. So this is a church that dates back to 1670. That's a really oh, wow. old church. Mm. They have baptismal records going back as far as 1690. Wow. Yeah, imagine that. And uh, this particular squirrel was likely let in during the day by a visitor and ended up being locked in there for the night. So during the night, of course, it uh, created all kinds of havoc. It knocked over plants. It knocked over votive candles. Thankfully, they weren't alight. Um, It chewed on some windowsills trying to find a way out. Uh, Didn't manage to get out. But the big piece of damage it did was... Um, yeah, and this one's kind of reminiscent, reminiscent of the uh, <coughs> Temple of Dagon um, <laughs> in that the central crucifix, right at the, the, the main feature crucifix, which was made out of plaster, it knocked it off the wall, and uh, uh, which is a statue of Jesus on the cross, and the head and arms are broken off. Oh. oh. So that was a bit, ooh. Ooh, that's a bit right. ouch. gnarly. It is a little bit gnarly and sort of, you know, the thought that went through my head when I read this was like, well, you know, that happened in the Temple of Dagon. You know, maybe we shouldn't be making carved images as a... Yeah. A thing of worship. <laughs> like, wow. Is this a sign? <laughs> question mark. Yeah, you'd have to sort of stop and ask yourself that question. Of course, the next morning um, they turned up at the church, you know, the, the people in charge there to open the church and get it ready for worship services, found all this damage. They called in some maintenance crews, and uh, when the maintenance crews arrived, and, of course, everybody was trying to figure out what on earth happened, mm. you know, because it's not the average kind of vandalism. It's not like somebody went in there with a can of spray paint or something rather. Mm. And it was really random, the stuff that had been damaged. Damaged, um, except for this crucifix, and uh, lo and behold, there was the culprit sitting on top of the piano, <laughs> looking as innocent as innocent as, as innocent as a squirrel can look. Can a squirrel? Does a squirrel ever look innocent? I yeah, think it does. I think squirrels so always cute. look cheeky. Look at the little chubby cheeks, you know. Yeah, always innocent. And well, compared to like. A mouse. Imagine or like if you a saw raccoon. a rat sitting on top of the piano. Yeah, exactly. Does that look Perfect. innocent? <laughs> okay. 
die. Yeah, squirrels are kind of cute. It's weird because they're exactly the same as like raccoon and mice, but like we have an affinity for them. Like we think they're cute and nice. We- yeah, you guys haven't lived a long enough time in America. I think they look mischievous. Ah, okay, okay, fair enough. Anyway, whatever. Okay. Um, so Lancaster <laughs> County in Pennsylvania has been able to accomplish what nobody else has been able to do and wiped out COVID-19. Oh, okay. Yes, That's you mentioned great. this before. How is this possible? Okay, so basically uh, it's been done through herd immunity and the way that herd immunity works is that you wipe out the habitable habitat. You wipe out the habitat that a particular um, organism can inhabit. So if you take you know anywhere where an organism is living, you destroy the habitat and their population gets so low that they can't keep reproducing. Mm-hmm. And the way that you wipe out the habitat for a virus is by everybody achieving immunity to, or enough people achieving immunity to the virus so that it can no longer actually spread anymore. Mm. And what's interesting about uh, Lancaster County is that uh, they estimate that 90% of the households have at least one person who was infected wow. by uh, the, the virus. And so they've determined, okay, that's what's going to take to um, to achieve herd immunity. But it's primarily an Amish, Mennonite, and Anabaptist community. Oh, wow. Okay. Which kind of leads to one of the reasons why they were able to achieve herd immunity so much faster than everybody else as far as the county goes because they've got such a large proportion of this particular uh, community. And the community initially complied with all of the lockdown orders, you know, back through March, April and so forth like mm-hmm. everybody did. By the by the end of April, they're like, no, nah, we're over this. And they went back to uh, their normal worship services, which in their tradition involves sharing the communion cup and the holy kiss. Oh. That's a lot of sharing. That's a lot of sharing. And you imagine doing that during COVID. Um, yikes. Yes, yikes. And so, predictably, it ripped through the community. Um, the positivity test rate at one point exceeded 20%. Okay. Wow. Which is a lot because it's like... Well, you think of how many millions of people were tested in Australia to get, you know, 2,000 positive results. Mm. Right. Or millions of tests that were done. And these guys were getting a, a 20% rate. Um, at one particular point, 15% of all of the patients in the local hospital were COVID patients. But they estimate that because of the, the nature of the community and the nature of the, you know, the kind of the mindset of the people that were there, less than 10% of infected people actually came for medical help. Mm. Most of them right. just sort of hunkered down and did traditional things and, you know, because it's the Mennonite, Amish, um, Anabaptist communities tend to be very traditional um, in the way that they approach issues. And uh, and so only le- less than 10% actually came for medical help. They say that through the summer it kind of ebbed off a little bit, came back strong in the autumn, and by the end of winter it was gone. Mm. Just wiped out and they believe it won't come back. They haven't had a single case wow. in six weeks. Wow. Wow. And this is a community that's not practicing any uh lockdown kind of <laughs> issues whatsoever at all. And and I guess what it illustrates is I guess where we would be as a world if we hadn't gone into lockdown. Mm. Which is an interesting thought. Um what was not reported in the uh, article that I was reading was what the fatality rate was because that would be something very, very interesting to actually look at and to compare. Mm-hmm. 
once again, I think that the lifestyle in these kind of communities, which uh, involves a lot of outdoor activity and a lot of physical activity, probably helped them tremendously. Yeah, I would expect. But um, yeah, I'm, and and you know, because of the nature of the community, we probably don't even know. Uh, what a, what the death rate was because there would be a lot of people who died without any kind of autopsy. Mm. Right. But it would be really good research to have so that we could actually compare, okay, uh, next time this happens, do we go down this path or this path or this path? Because it's probably the best example anywhere in the world of embracing the virus as compared to locking down. Yeah. And that's research that we need to have. Well, you got to think like I, I would I would think that this community would be particularly healthy, particularly like especially the Amish community, which it's like any virus, it doesn't it thrives less on you know, there's less of a death rate with uh, healthy people. So you're listening to the Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM, positively different. We're going to go to our interview of the day. Yes. And who's joining us today, Janae? Uh, so this morning we have with us Dr. Paul Woods, who's joining us on the phone to talk about type 2, type two diabetes. Uh, good morning, Dr. Wood. Good to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, so just have a few questions for you, obviously. The first being, what is type 2 diabetes? Yeah, so type 2 diabetes is a condition where your body becomes resistant effects of insulin and um, what happens is over time your blood sugar is gradually rise and that comes with different complications and things. Right. So how does this occur? Yeah, so with type 2 diabetes, it's largely a lifestyle-related problem. Right. So it, it's one of these lifestyle diseases where we can think about your genes might cock the gun and your lifestyle is what pulls the trigger. So there's certainly a genetic component to, um, to contributing to diabetes Lifestyle is, is probably the big, big risk factor for diabetes. Right, okay. So just, you know, uh, when I was looking, um, doing a little bit of research on it, um, you see the term pre-diabetes come up a lot. Um, and what is that and how do we know if we're in that category? Yes, what, what happens for about 10 years leading up to a diagnosis of diabetes is this thing called insulin resistance. And um, so diabetes basically doesn't really happen to your blood sugars get above that level of 7. Um, but before your body starts having problems with blood sugars rising, there's this thing called insulin resistance which is going on. So what basically happens is your body, when you have a carbohydrate-containing meal, and um, that carbohydrate-containing meal gets broken down into glucose, which gets absorbed into your bloodstream, and um, your blood sugar starts to rise, your body then produces insulin from the, um, from the pancreas, which then helps to lower that, um, that blood sugar. So with insulin resistance, what happens is the cells that are meant to respond to this insulin become deaf to the effects of the insulin. So they need higher and higher amounts of insulin um, to respond. It's, I guess it's a bit like you're talking to somebody who's hearing impaired. You've got to talk louder and louder to that person. Mm. Um, so that's what's happening with, with insulin resistance. And pre-diabetes is a little stage before you get to actual diabetes where the sugars are starting to rise. They haven't quite crossed over the threshold before you get to actual diabetes. Right. So what are some risk factors that may contribute to the likelihood of getting type 2 diabetes? So family history is one. Um, age is another. Um, I guess those are two things you can't do too much about. But um, the other ones uh, would be obesity, high blood pressure, certain cultural backgrounds as well. So um, our indigenous folk in Australia, um, Pacific Islanders, people from the Indian subcontinent, Chinese um, cultural backgrounds have high risks. 
Um, also, for mums who've been pregnant and have had what they call gestational diabetes, that's like a, a kind of diabetes that get just during pregnancy, they have a high risk for developing diabetes um, in the track as well. All right, that makes sense. So what are some symptoms or, you know, signs that you may have it? Yeah, so in the early stages, we probably have no signs. And this is why it's important that people with risk factors, risk factors for diabetes get um, tested regularly because we want to pick up on it at an early stage before we actually develop any symptoms or signs of diabetes. But as the blood sugar starts to rise more and more, some of the symptoms you might experience with things like an excessively thirsty passing lots of urine, feeling tired with target. Um, if you cut yourself, you might find the cut takes a while to heal up. Um, more prone to certain skin infections, particularly sort of fungal infections, like it might be sort of thrush, for example. Um, blurry vision can happen as your sugars rise. Um, unfortunately for some people, and this is pretty late, late sign, but um, it, it could be that you know, you're having a heart attack um, or developing a, a foot ulcer. Like I recently had the opportunity to work in the Pacific in, um, in Fiji and um, unfortunately, over there, many many of the times, the first sign of diabetes there is, is somebody losing a foot due to diabetes. Wow. Right. So, you know, just following up to that, how does diabetes affect a person's life in general? And what are some, you know, negative complications that come with that? Yeah. So, in the early stages with diabetes, we usually manage it with diet. So, for somebody with diabetes, we're just simply look, looking at changing their diet, um, working on exercise, working on weight loss. Um, down the track, medications often get added. But um, what we're trying to prevent by controlling their blood sugars is things like blindness, because you can get what's called diabetic retinopathy, where the back of the eye gets damaged, um, strokes, heart attacks, um, kidney disease, in males, erectile dysfunction, um, something called peripheral vascular disease, which is where the arteries that supply your legs can get blocked off, and that's what can contribute to um, amputations. Um, and also something called diabetic neuropathy, which is where the nerves and the feet actually get damaged so that you can't feel things quite so well. So these are some of the key complications we're trying to prevent by um, controlling blood sugar as well. Right, okay. So how can people manage type 2 diabetes? Are we looking at, you know, getting professional help and at what stage do they have to, you know, do that? Yeah, so I mean, the exciting thing is that this is a largely preventable disease. Um and when I was in the Pacific, it's interesting to note that I went to a, a uh, main hospital in the Solomon Islands, and um, there there's a ward full of patients who've lost legs to diabetes. Mm-hmm. What's interesting to find when you talk to some of the old doctors there is that 30 years ago, diabetes didn't exist. In fact, there was a specialist from the UK who went to the Solomon Islands and um, thought that perhaps they had some special gene that protected them from getting type 2 diabetes. Um, but yeah, 30 years in the track. Um, with diabetes and rife in, in the Solomon Islands. The big, the big factor there has been a change in diet. It's been towards moved away from their typical garden, garden type diets, eating out of the garden, lots of fruits, vegetables, eating more processed foods, and particularly high impacts of fatty red meat. And it seems that some um, saturated fats seem to play a role in, in gumming up these insulin receptors. It's like putting chewing gum in a lock. Uh, when, when you try and put the key in the lock, it doesn't turn quite so well. And uh, we think that might be playing a role with, with type 2 diabetes. So I guess sort of largely majoring in a diet high in, um, in plant foods. And um, whole plant foods tend to have a low caloric density. And uh, that seems to contribute to helping assist with weight loss. There's, there's a really fascinating study that's been done recently published in the Lancet Journal back in 2018 called the Direct Trial. And uh, what they did with this trial was they put 
uh, people on a, a really low caloric density diet um, for three to five months. Then they gradually introduce food and they, they withdrew their diabetes medications, their blood pressure medications over time. What they found in that study was that uh, 46% of people in this, in this study actually uh, put their diabetes into remission. So in other words, technically they no longer had diabetes. And what they found was that those people who lost the most weight had the greatest remission. So if you lost, say, between zero to five kilograms of weight, um, there's a 7% remission of diabetes. If you lost more than 15 kilos of weight, there was an 86% remission of diabetes. Um, now, this is something you rarely see in general practice where I, where I work. But um, when patients make substantial changes to their lifestyles that, re- that result in weight loss, um, you can actually put this disease into remission. In other words, on paper, it looks like you don't have it because your sugars are basically normal. So um, I guess for any of our listeners today who are, who are struggling with diabetes, if they can really start working on their on their weight loss, just the weight around your, around your waist, um, this, this is the area of, of, of weight that seems to contribute most to a risk of, risk of diabetes. Dr. Paul Woods, um, just Lyle um, jumping, jumping in here with a question. Um, when, when I hear that, the question that goes through my mind is this. Is it as simple with type 2 diabetes as a choice? In other words, if I go, if I've got type 2 diabetes and I go just full blast and get my lifestyle just, you know, going amazingly, um, can any type 2 diabetes be put into remission? So if, if you get on to early enough, in, in the majority of cases, the answer is yes. Um, but the longer you leave it, so if you've had diabetes for, say, you know, 10 years or so, um, the chances of putting into remission are much lower. And one reason for that is what happens over time is the cells that produce insulin, called beta cells in your pancreas, actually die up over time. So intervening early, so particularly in the pre-diabetic stage or the early diabetes stage is, is really key uh, when it comes to trying to reverse that, um, reverse that diabetes. But I guess that, you know, that's in an ideal world. And I, and I guess if you look at our society today, we live in a society today where it's actually easy to be unhealthy. Um, we go back 50 years ago in society, people weren't any particularly more health conscious than they are today. But um, we don't. We didn't see the the large numbers of people with obesity that we had going back 50 years ago. Because our lifestyles are very different. So I, I guess today we're living in a society where unless people are really intentional, and I guess surround themselves with positive influences, um, it's actually much harder to, to to make those healthy lifestyle changes. Right. So uh, I was just looking at a few statistics earlier, and in the United States, apparently about 1.4 million new cases are diagnosed with type two diabetes every year. Um, part of my ethnicity is Samoan, and in Samoa, um, type two diabetes was the leading cause of death in 2016. So, what can we learn from some of the more serious cases where type two diabetes has become um, an epidemic? Yeah, absolutely. What, what it underscores is the lifestyle changes. So. You- I, last year I was in Samoa um, as well and um, interestingly in Samoa um, that there is one well, of large rates of obesity over there not everybody is um, in that in that category you probably tend to sort of go into more rural parts of Samoa and, and where people sort of work on the land more and you tend to see sort of less, less obesity there um, last year I was also in Fiji went to, into the highlands of Fiji and um, while on the coastal fringes of Fiji you see a lot of people who um are struggling with weight and diabetes and having heart attacks in their 40s. Um, when you go into the rural parts of Fiji where people are still sticking to their traditional diets, you're seeing, you know, old men, um, old women living to ripe old ages um, who are boarding these medications, which means people are getting in their 40s and 50s these days. So 
you know, underscores it's really much, very much a lifestyle disease. So as a society, we need to think about what can we do to make the healthy choice the easy choice uh, when it comes to making healthy lifestyle changes. And that's something that obviously is individual choices, but there's things we can do as a community to help make it easier for people to move, to move more and to, um, to eat healthier, healthier foods. Dr. Paul, would you mention some parts of Asia that have very high rates of type 2 diabetes, like I think you mentioned China, and often we think of uh, these kind of parts of the world. You know, I mean, of course, Japan has some blue zones in it where you have very long-lived people. Uh, what would it be? What would be the cause over there? We often we, we don't we don't think of Asia as being a country or or a, a region that deals with a lot of obesity. So what, what's taken place there is as Asians have become more affluent. And you tend to sort of see diabetes more in the affluent populations. Their, their, their percentage of animal protein as an intake, in terms of, in other words, their, their meat intake, has, has drastically increased. And we know that diets higher in red meat intake seem to be associated with high risk of type 2 diabetes. So, again, it gets back to the saturated fat probably playing a role. But when you sort of go to the more rural areas of Asia, you tend to find rates of diabetes are much lower. Um, because that reflects their lower, they basically can't afford as much red meat as their as the richer counterparts. Right. So, just uh, last quick question: um, How can we determine our own personal risk, and where can we get more information? Yes. Yeah, so if people want to jump onto the Diabetes Australia website, um, there's a risk calculator you can use called the Australian Diabetes Risk Assessment Tool, and that's actually a tool we use in general practice to help determine risk. So. If you came and saw me, Lyle, for example, and um, said, look, I'm, you know, whatever age I am, um, worried about diabetes, I can plug in your risk based on your age, your family history, your ethnic background. One key thing we look at is your weight circumference um, as, a, as a measure of risk. So these are all things you can plug into this risk calculator and then figure out what's my actual risk of getting type 2 diabetes. And then start having to think about what can I do to, to lower that risk. Because as I said, genes cocks the, cocks the gun, but lifestyle squats up. Uh, largely called the trigger with this disease. Well, uh, thanks again, Dr. Wood, for joining us today. We really appreciate your response. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.